Welcome back to Beyond Texas. I'm W.F. Strong, your storyteller. We're on part two of a three-part series on Joan of Arc. Have a great treat for you today. British historian, BBC documentarian, and podcaster Dan Snow will join us. He is a graduate of Oxford and has, I believe, the largest following in historical podcasts, over a million followers for his outstanding history hit podcast. I'll tell you more about him in a moment. Right now, I'd like to ask you to make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you'll get notifications when a new episode is posted. I'm trying to be consistent in uploading new episodes each weekend, and now I'm trying to be consistent about making sure it's done before Saturday midnight, Texas time. You can also support this podcast on Patreon. Toss in what you can, as if I'm the guy on the corner playing a cello for a few coins. I always think of Robert Redford in Out of Africa, who thanked Meryl Streep for a story. He gave her a pin. He said, we pay our storytellers here. I like that. A pin, a beer, tequila shot, or a kind note. All are welcome. I want to also mention, before we start, that I'm impressed and honored, really, that we have so many international listeners. England, France, Ireland, Ecuador, Venezuela, Colombia, Mexico, Korea, Russia, Japan, China, Hong Kong specifically, Israel, Netherlands, Qatar, Brazil, Greece, Panama, Austria, Australia, and Cameroon. It's a brave new world out there. The reach of one individual is mind-blowing. Okay, let's get going with Joan of Arc. Last week, we looked at Twain's adoration of her demonstrated in his biographical novel. Twain made this point in the preface. He said, The details of the life of Joan of Arc form a biography that is unique among the world's biographies in one respect. It is the only story of a human life which comes to us under oath, the only one which comes to us from the witness stand. The official records of the great trial of 1431 and the process of rehabilitation a quarter of a century later are still preserved in the National Archives of France, and they furnish with remarkable fullness the facts of her life. The history of no other life of that remote time is known with either the certainty or the comprehensiveness that attaches to hers. Well, Twain is right. That is true. It is remarkable that the documents pertaining to her trials and even to her battles are preserved not only in the National Archives, but also in the way of private diaries and journals and surviving civic records of the cities and towns she liberated. Just astonishing to think that so much survived. There is also the rumor that in some ancient secret cabinet in the Vatican are still more papers that would reveal the untold story. But <laughs> if all the secret papers rumored to be hidden in the Vatican were real, we'd need another Vatican just to hold them all. So let's go with what we know. Joan began hearing voices when she was 13, St. Catherine, St. Margaret, and Michael the Archangel all visited her in various mystical forms and talked to her about how she would be the savior of France. Over time, they gave her precise instructions about just how she would do this. First, she would go to the local governor, 
Robert de Baudricourt, and ask him for a military escort to see the would-be king, the Dauphin, as he was called. There she would tell the king that she, the simple shepherd girl, should be put in charge of his armies, so she could defeat the British and then escort him to Reims, where she would place his rightful crown on his head. Her first attempt at explaining this all matter-of-factly to the governor earned her nothing but scorn and ridicule and his professed suspicion that she was crazy. In modern times, many doctors and scholars like to assess her mental state from the distance of six centuries. Some say that she was schizophrenic. Some say she suffered from hallucinations, and some believe she had simply delusions of grandeur. And there are even others who think she was a fraud. I prefer to see the world through her eyes. She was an exceptionally devout young girl who attended Mass and confession as much as possible. She hated to leave church because it was there that she was close to God. Hearing voices was not strange to her had Moses not heard the voice of God who told him to lead his people out of bondage and Daniel, and Joseph too. It is not remarkable to me that in that age she should not think herself crazy for hearing voices. Her experience was certainly consistent with other biblical figures who said, Why me, Lord? I'm a simple girl from a little backwater village. Why me? She later said, Whatever I have done that is good, I have done at the bidding of my voices. I'm not surprised that she believed in her voices. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that the priests and clerics of her time, who were better schooled in the Bible and miracles, were so reluctant to believe in her. After all, she had that holy grail-type, unyielding faith that could move mountains. And did. I prefer not to struggle with the psychological assessments. She believed, and the proof of her belief is in her actions, and the possible validity of divine inspiration is in the outcome. Against all earthly odds, this simple, inexperienced, illiterate girl delivered her demoralized nation from the certain grip of a medieval superpower. Never had victory more convincingly been snatched from the jaws of defeat. And the peasant class believed in her. In France, in that time, there was a well-known prophecy that had been uttered by Merlin 800 years before. He said, many centuries ahead, France will be lost by a woman and saved by a virgin. Isabel of Bavaria sold out France to England and was hence the woman who lost France. Joan of Arc would be the deliverer, the virgin, who saved her. Timing is everything. She fit in with the prophecy perfectly, and 99% of the people were deeply religious, good Catholics who believed in the Bible and the powers of God and the saints and, yes, ancient legends as well. So she was, to the peasant class, a rock star, a spiritual warrior, unequaled in their experience. So on the second trip to see the governor, Joan found that his heart had softened, and he sent a small military escort of 25 knights or so to take her safely through enemy territory, I might add, to make her case to Charles the Seventh. Charles was also reluctant to 
talk to her. But as his kingdom was slipping away from him, he said, I've already lost half my kingdom. What have I got to lose in listening to the girl? A clever advisor said, The other half? Well, he took a chance, and he found her convincing. He had his religious counselors interview her, well, cross-examine her, actually, and she held her own with these scholars of theology. They asked her for a sign. She said that the sign was in convincing the governor to send her to the king. The sign was in the fact that she had made it safely through hundreds of miles of enemy territory. The sign would be forthcoming when she defeated the English at Orleans. Charles was also moved in that Joan, having never seen him before, had picked him out from a sea of men in the royal court, where he wore nothing to signify his lofty station. So he sent her to Orleans with a large military escort and food for the city that had been cut off from France for months. She rode a beautiful white horse and had a banner that was twelve feet long. She described it this way, The field was sown with lilies, and therein was our Lord, holding the world with two angels, one on either hand. It was white, all white, and on it there were written the names Jesus Maria, and it was fringed with silk. She also, according to legend, had a sword that added to her divine mystique. She had sent a soldier to a church to get an old sword that she said was buried there at the church of St. Catherine. She asked that it be brought to her. She had never been to that church. Even the priest there didn't know about the sword. But it was found, and the dirt and rust rubbed off easily, and she took it into battle, although she never thrust it into anyone. According to her, she never killed anyone. She preferred her banner forty times over, she said, to her sword, because it served to rally the soldiers around her and concentrate their force in the most strategic ways. Here I will turn over the narration to Dan Snow, our British historian, whose podcast, History Hit, has a special focus on the greatest battles of all time. I met Dan when he asked me to join him at the Alamo and walk him through the grounds and tell him the story of the battle. So we've remained in touch since then, and I ask him to do us the favor of walking us through the Battle of Orleans, the most important battle of Joan of Arc's military career, because it established her legend and inspired the French to follow her. Dan, thank you for joining us. Well, WF, thanks so much for asking me to come on the podcast. Very, very, very kind of you. And to talk about this remarkable siege, this remarkable turning point in, in French, British, European history. Um, you are right. It's one of those, it's one of those stories. And I'll tell you what, it's one of those stories that unless it was well chronicled, unless you trusted these sources, you just can't believe it is true. A young woman, a young peasant woman in that kind of patriarchal society arriving, arriving in camp, convincing the military commanders to let her lead, and then routing the hated English enemy. It's just extraordinary. I guess the place to start is the geography. Well, that's the history. Let's locate ourselves. We're in, we're in kind of 1428, 1429. The English, having had not a huge amount of success uh, during the Hundred Years' War up to that point, 
uh, you know, with the, with the Plantagenet monarchs, if Edward the Third, his son and his grandson Richard the Second, Richard the Second, things are kind of things are kind of petered out slightly. The wars kind of stopped under Richard the Second. Henry the Fourth steals the throne from his cousin. Uh, he's too busy fighting uh, rebellions in in the British Isles to worry about France that much. But Henry the Fifth, the young warrior king, decides he's going to reignite things, and he wins the Battle of Agincourt, famously in fourteen fifteen. So this he is then made regent of France. He campaigns after Agincourt. He marries the French king's daughter, and he has himself uh, proclaimed heir to the French king when he dies. So this is actually England in the ascendant here. It looks like they might actually fulfil their dream of becoming kings of France. But Henry V dies, dysentery, unfortunately, the old, the classic uh, military camp malady. And he leaves behind him. He dies just before the French king. The French king dies just after him, which the timing's critical. So Henry V never succeeds to the French throne. And his son does. Trouble is, his son's a baby, not and not just a baby, is a baby who grows into a very ineffectual king. He obviously he wrestles Henry the Sixth with uh, mental health problems through his life. He has a full breakdown. He's eventually kicked off the throne of England, but that's another story. Um, and because of the importance of kingship of leadership in this period, Henry the Sixth uh, is bad news for the English crown's attempt to rule France. So Henry the Sixth is still a baby. You've actually got a very impressive. Regent on the throne, John of of Lancaster. Uh, John is Henry V's younger brother. He was the Duke of Bedford. He was as almost as impressive as his as his big brother. Actually, he's a um, a heck of a warrior, um, and he uh, succeeds in kind of holding on to much of northern France as well as southwest France, kind of possessions of the English crown. But Orleans, Orleans, is a, a hugely important place. It's it's just south of, well, it's south of Paris, due south of Paris. And if they take Orléans, they are going to be able to march into central France and control central France. The, the, really, the French, the Kingdom of France is in big trouble if the English take Orléans. And that's why English forces find themselves besieging Orléans, which is a, a critical crossing point of the mighty Loire River, um, in 1428. Now, the Siege of Orléans, even if it hadn't been for the intervention of Joan of Arc later on in the siege, the Siege of Orléans is one of those kind of classics of the medieval period. It's the one that it shows siege craft in all its terrible uh, and remarkable uh, glory, if you like. Uh, it, it's you, you, get, um, you get an artillery bombardment initially, then you get an assault on the walls on the, on the 21st of October, uh, you know, it's the hand-to-hand fighting that the French throw the English back with uh, hot oil, coals, quicklime to blind them, uh, missiles that they throw down off the walls. Then, then the English try to undermine the walls, meaning they they dig uh, tre- they big tunnels under the walls, they mine out under the under the walls, they hold up these these underground cavities with pit props, with wooden props. When the when the underground space is big enough, they set fire to it, they burn all the pit props out, and everything comes crashing down. Um, they then fight. They then fight another battle. They drive the French away from this uh, sort of outlying fortification. The French blow up the bridge as they retreat, and it looks like Orléans is doomed. But the French then receive reinforcements. And through the winter months, you get this like attritional, brutal siege warfare. I mean, we think of the First World War. You actually, you think of the campaign towards Richmond at the end of the US Civil War as the birth of siege warfare. But these medieval sieges uh, would have been very familiar, I think, to those soldiers in Grant's army or in the armies on the Western Front, mud, 
trenches edging ever closer to each other, uh, counter so raids lead, leaving Orléans to try and destroy those fortifications that are edging ever further to the French walls. Um, just a just a brutal, just a brutal attritional conflict. By April fourteen twenty nine, the uh, the French have a bit of luck. The English aren't fighting alone. They've got their Burgundian allies. Burgundy is an area in what is today uh, eastern France. They're kind of an autonomous dukedom within uh, within the sort of French world. Uh, and the English and the Burgundians fall out. So the Burgundian army leaves in a huff at Orléans. So the English are still um, have the upper hand. It looks like Orléans is about to fall. But the Burgundians have left the English now as a pretty small force um, besieging that uh, that town, that city. But the English are feeling pretty good. They think they're going to capture it and then really decapitate the French state after this. The Dauphin, the French prince, the French claimant to the, the French crown, um, was uh, his cause looked like it was going to be in big trouble if Orléans fell. But it was then that this, this remarkable story begins. A young French peasant girl, Joan of Arc, uh, arrived and she told anyone that she could find that she had a divinely ordained mission. She had been hearing voices from God, and he told her to go and uh, rescue the Dauphin, Charles, and she'd been told to take him to Reims for a traditional royal coronation. She'd been ignored a few times. She'd been ignored a few times, but as the war uh, went worse and worse for the French, they said, well, what harm can it do? Let's listen to this, uh, let's listen to this, this young woman. Perhaps she's the... Perhaps she's the fulfilment of the prophecy that we've often heard about a young armoured maiden coming to rescue France. And rescue France is exactly what she did. First of all, there was the, the first miracle is that she, as she approached Orléans she, with, with a sort of supply convoy, uh, the wind apparently, she, she approached by, by river and, and the wind apparently changed or was particularly, you know, went from 180 degrees, went through 180 degrees. It was the right way when she needed it to be. And she sailed into Orléans with a, uh, with a, a Fleet of boats with supplies uh, and a few extra reinforcements. So she's then she's now inside Orléans. She's parading through the streets. She's developing this huge following. People, the people, the townspeople, the garrison would come out to watch her. She demanded that the English leave, and they greeted that obviously with good old fashioned uh, English jeering, swearing. And it was in May fourteen twenty nine, on the fourth of May, that she launched her first attack against English positions. She actually almost missed the action. She was asleep at the time, but the French the French commander ordered the attack. Um, and 1,500 French attackers kind of overwhelmed this isolated British garrison part of the uh, besieging force. I'm going to slip in here a second and set the scene with some sounds that would have been typical of medieval battle. Imagine yourself, like Joan, an absolute novice to war, bravely pushing forth in this cacophony of confusion and life-threatening danger at every turn. Uh, Joan was in the thick of the fighting, uh, and after that, and after that, she... And the following day, she wanted to keep up the momentum. She wanted to attack another large English outpost. And such was her fame by that time within Orléans that the people, townspeople all rushed to join her as well. So a kind of motley force of professional soldiers and just a kind of militia all swirled out of Orléans um, and, uh, and launched this attack on English positions. 
Joan apparently single-handedly saved the day. The attack didn't go so well at first. People, the French ran away, but then Joan lifted up her banner, rallied the troops to her uh, and led them, led them forward. And then straight away after that, she launches the, the attack that really made her the the attack that turned her into a thing of legend. Um, she she the, on the on the seventh of May there was a sort of frustrating bombardment going on. No, not much action. The English were uh, seemed immovable in this one particular fortress. Um, and and Joan galloped up on a horse, having been at prayer. She just grabbed a ladder and she just launched a massive frontal assault by herself. Um, just just calling for anyone just calling for anyone who fancied it to follow her and that led to this sort of surge of, of French troops uh, Joan was hit by a Joan was hit by a longbow arrow a bolt but bravely returned to the fray uh, and at the sight of this the French troops swarmed over the the fortress uh, and it was it was captured from the English. There was no point at that point. There was no point then continuing the siege, and the English troops had to lift the siege and retreated. So this was a this was a you know decisive turning point in the Hundred Years' War. Um, it was that it was that came at the end of a, a great string of victories uh, for the English, and from this point on, really inspired by Joan of Arc, the, the English would only know defeats, and sure it was. And sure enough, she was able to march towards Reims, the ancient place where French kings were crowned, and she was able to put the Dauphin Charles on the throne and crown him King Charles VII of France on uh, the 17th of July, 1429, just a few months after that terribly low ebb when it looked like Orléans might fall. And Charles had thought about going into exile in Scotland and giving it all up. So the French owed it all to the remarkable leadership of Joan of Arc. Hell of a story, WF, and as you say in Texas, some of it might even be true. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much for taking the time to give us your take on the Battle of Orleans. Now, if I can just learn to say it as you do, Orléans. After her great victory here, her bona fides were established, and she went on to many more victories. Scott Manning, a military historian, says this about her. Joan of Arc was an aggressive military commander who always opted for offense instead of defense. In 13 known engagements, her troops were victorious nine times. At least 30 different cities, towns, and villages surrendered without a fight when she approached with her army. Personally, she was a skilled horseman and swordsman, but tactically, she knew how to direct armies and place gunpowder artillery. Joan of Arc was ultimately successful in doing what she said she'd do. She escorted Charles VII deep into enemy territory to Reims in northeastern France, where he could legitimately be crowned King of France. Twain, in his novel, which we might think of as a docudrama today, helps us imagine how Joan was adored by the crowds as she escorted the king's party to the coronation, Twain did aim for accuracy in writing about her. He did his research in the French archives in Paris. So, so here is a telling description from Joan's friend within the novel. We rode to the king's lodgings, which was the archbishop's country palace, and he was presently ready, and we galloped off and took position at the head of the army. By this time, the country people were arriving in multitudes from every direction, 
and massing themselves on both sides of the road to get sight of Joan, just as they had done every day since our first day on the march. Today our march now lay through the grassy plain, and these peasants made a dividing double border for that plain. They stretched right down through it, a broad belt of bright colors on each side of the road, for every peasant girl and woman in it had a white jacket on her body and a crimson skirt on the rest of her. These borders made of poppies and lilies stretching away in front of us is what we had been marching through all these days, not a lane between multitudinous flowers standing upright on their stems. No, these flowers were always kneeling. These human flowers with their hands and faces lifted toward Joan of Arc and the grateful tears streaming down and all along those closest to the road would hug her feet and kiss them and laid their wet cheeks fondly against them. I never during all those days saw any of either sex stand while she passed or any man keep his head covered. Afterward, in the trial, these touching scenes were used as a weapon against her. She had been made an object of adoration by the people, and this was proof that she was a heretic. After the coronation, the king asked what he could give Joan in return for her priceless service to him and to France. She asked only that the people of her village not be taxed for some time, as it was a great burden on them. He couldn't believe that that was all she asked for but he granted her wish forevermore in perpetuity. And it's true, the people of Domremy and Gru, the sister village, paid no taxes for about 300 years, until the French Revolution, when they were reinstated. Next week, the trials of Joan of Arc. You can reach me anytime at wfstrongpodcast at gmail.com. That's WF Strong Podcast, one word at gmail.com. 